Hello and welcome to Beauty is Eternal, the art of being your best self for women, where we go in depth and under the skin of experts. My name is Caitlin and I'm your host. Today's episode is called Attachment Disorder Expert Paula Sachs, Insecure versus Secure Attachment Styles, Tinder Shark Pool Dating Rules, and How to Build Self-Esteem. Most people want to lead a happy life and to share it with a partner that they love. That sounds simple enough, but for many people, it does not work out so simply. They may have attachment disturbances that they are unaware of and repeat patterns unconsciously, asking themselves why they are still single, but never getting to the root cause. In the digital era that we live in, Dating has been transformed into something resembling a numbers game, or what my guest today Paula calls a shark pool. Many people, and especially women, struggle to find and keep the right partner at the right time, especially if they are hoping to have both a career and children. Paula Sachs is an expert in adult attachment disorders and is a licensed and clinically trained social worker with advanced training through Harvard Medical School. She offers psychotherapy and hypnotherapy for grief, anxiety, and adjustment disorders, peak performance, and phobias. She is one of the authors of the 2016 book, Attachment Disorders in Adults, Treatment for Comprehensive Repair, along with Dr. Daniel Brown, Dr. David Elliott, and a team of therapists. You can read more about her on her website, paulasaxlicsw.com, which I will link to in the notes to this show. Today, Paula is going to talk to us about attachment styles and why they matter, explain the rules of online dating to keep us safe from predators and men or women who say one thing and yet do another, discuss the push-pull of anxious and avoidant attachment styles becoming drawn to one another, as well as teaching us how to build self-esteem. If no one ever teaches you to build self-esteem, you may not have any. This episode is brought to you in part by The Attachment Project. Visit attachmentproject.com for more information about how you can change your attachment style to secure. Without further ado, let's get to the interview. Thank you so much for being on the show today, Paula. I am so excited to have an expert on attachment like you come and talk to us. Oh, well, thank you very much for having me. One of my favorite things to talk about is attachment. (laughs) Let's start with the fundamental basis of what we're here to talk about. What is attachment? What is attachment style? And what are the four attachment types? Excellent. Well, everybody has an attachment style, very much like everybody has a zodiac sign. There's 12 zodiac signs. You know what your sign is. You know what the characteristics are of your zodiac sign. And attachment is somewhat like that. Attachment is created very early on, let's say between zero to 18 months of life. And it's created through the care of the caregiver and the infant. 
And we do have four attachment styles. The first one being secure. Now what a secure attachment style looks like for children or for adults is you have people that are comfortable with relationships, they establish emotional in intimacy, they're comfortable being alone, they're warm and open with others, they accept criticism without distress, they have a strong sense of self, they have self-reflective skills, and they're open with their feelings with people, and they have positive feelings about relationships. And that is about two-thirds of the population, which is good news. But then we have three different types of insecure attachment. And the first one I'll talk about is what's called a dismissing attachment style. And these are people that are discomfortable with closeness. They avoid getting close and being intimate. They have dismissing behaviors. They're aloof and contempt, difficulty getting close, fear of closeness, kind of have a false self, and they pull away when someone else gets kind of close to them. And they have this illusion of like self-sufficiency, meaning they kind of stand like an island. Then the next insecure attachment style is what we call an anxious preoccupied style. And these are people, this is mostly what I see in my office. It's excessive worry about relationships, worrying one's partner won't care about them as much as they care, excessive need for approval, ignoring warning signs in relationships, fear of scaring people away and also being abandoned, easily upset, they are jealous, fear of being alone, they have compulsive caretaking, they're clingy, demanding, nagging, sulking, and they try to impress people very early on. The third type of insecure attachment is what we call disorganized fearful attachment. And that is where you actually have the combination of the two insecure attachment styles I just spoke about. You have this kind of like need to be alone, but also this need to be with somebody. And it's what I kind of call the person who's like, I hate you, I hate you, don't leave me, don't leave me. And that's what a disorganized attachment style is. And attachment plays out in relationships. So it, whether it's a relationship with parents, a relationship with child, a relationship with siblings, work relation, marriage, dating, it only plays out in relationships. And that's where you start to see some of the discomfort that's going on. Am I correct that your attachment style forms when you're very young? And is it possible later in life to change your attachment style? Or is it so that your early experiences are just going to shape you for the rest of your life? What are the possibilities for becoming secure for that one-third of the population with insecure attachment? Well, the possibilities are, are, are very good. Right now, we've developed a treatment model. It's called the three pillars form of a treatment. And what we actually do once we assess an insecure attachment style we do our approach, which is where we introduce them through hypnosis to imaginary parents, which is the positive opposite of what they would have gotten when they were younger. And then it's also developing their metacognitive skills, kind of being very aware of how they are in relationships, what the consequences of their behaviors are, and what the other people's relationships are, or what the consequences with them. And all of this is acted out in the third pillar, which is a collaborative approach. And that is where you actually engage and you work with a therapist or an attachment specialist like myself. And we do it together. And we really kind of like start the whole process through hypnosis, through talking. And we actually can move people 
from an insecure attachment style into a secure attachment. And what I see most often, I see mostly anxious preoccupied styles will come into my office and it's, we work on this and as they start to change, they don't really see the change. But what happens is around them, their family, their friends start to say, you know, you're, at, you're, you're so different these days. And they'll come in and say, why am I different? Why is everybody telling me I'm different? I don't feel different. And one of the things that is interesting is most of the time, an anxious preoccupied style will come in. Dismissive insecure attachment style, they actually don't seek treatment because they kind of have this, I'm fine, there's something else wrong with you. So that's why I will see an anxious preoccupied style come in, even if they're in a relationship with someone who has dismissive attachment, because they take on the problems of the relationship. So it does get a little bit complex when an insecure style is in a relationship, let's say, with another insecure style. Could you give us some examples of the four attachment types so that someone listening, for instance, might be able to recognize their own characteristics and realize their own attachment style a little bit? Yes, I'd love to. When you're with someone who's secure, they tend to really value the relationship and they live in the here and the now and the present. They really focus on what's going on now. They want to help you. They want to pull for you. They want you to be supportive of them. And it is basically a pretty good relationship. It stays present. When you start going with in the more insecure, you start getting into a little bit more of, let's say, like a trouble zone. For instance, an anxious preoccupied attachment style, if you're in a relationship with someone who has this, you can be talking about something that they did today and you're upset about it. And all of a sudden that person will start talking about a fight that you had five years ago that's unresolved. And you're like, wait a minute. Help. What, what are you talking about that five years ago? We're talking about right now. And they're like, no, I am still upset with you. You always do this. Here's all the reasons why. And it's almost like they have a whole spreadsheet in front of them that they are just calling you out on. Okay? Have you ever seen anyone who actually had a spreadsheet about that? <laughs> no, because they don't actually need a spreadsheet. They carry okay. And then if you have someone who's, let's say, a dismissive style, they tend to blow off a lot of things. And especially if you get someone, let's use the classic example, a man who's a dismissive style, all right? And let's do an, a woman who's an anxious preoccupied style. What starts to play out is a dismissive style tends to like not place a lot of importance on things. They, and that's why that's called dismissive. They dismiss a lot of accomplishments. They dismiss a lot of things that are important to their partner. And that really starts upsetting, let's say, someone who has an anxious preoccupied style, because that will set off the worry in the anxious preoccupied style that this person doesn't care that much about them. And they're so over-involved in the other person's state that they start taking on and creating all these problems because the more they pull at this other, let's say, dismissive style, the more the dismissive will kind of seem more aloof because they don't want the closeness. All right. But underlying all of the insecure attachment styles, all three of them, is they all want to have a relationship. But what happens is these kind of earlier behaviors kind of get in the way. And if they're not really aware of them and they don't really understand how they come about and they don't do, let's say, like the positive opposites and start putting in the change, it plays out over and over and over and over again. Well, that rings really true for me because I'm 33 and I live in a city 
I have tons of friends, male and female, who would love to find someone and would love to find a great partner, but they can't seem to do it. And this rings a bit more true for my female friends than for my male friends, but actually it goes both ways. It seems to be that either they meet someone and this person is not up to their standards, or they meet someone and they really like this person and that person they really like seems to elude them. Even though they'd like to get closer to that person, that person pulls away at some point and they're left confused. And I can also remember this from times when I was single. Would this fit into the anxious and dismissive pattern that you're talking about? I would say that, yes. And we're talking about someone who's been in a relationship. But one of the things that would really help is to kind of understand these things before you get into a relationship or when you start looking for the relationship. And I'll give you an example. One of the things that we kind of encourage is kind of like, understanding your style, understanding what the other person's style is. But then you say, well, how do I know what the other person's style is? They look really nice. All right. So let's take, for example, a little bit of dating. All right. I'm sure as a young girl, you're out there dating and how everybody dates today is basically through the internet or through dating apps. And I know that there's a ton of horror stories with dating apps that have gone really bad. And I don't know. I mean, is that how you and your friends or how the people that you know are dating these days? Well, I actually met my boyfriend on a dating app. I got really lucky because he's a great guy. Excellent. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Well, Did you date on the dating app before you met him? Uh, we met on the dating app and then we met in real life shortly thereafter. Very nice. That's great. I mean, it's so nice to hear success stories. Can I tell you? Well, I think that the dating apps, the difficulty is they, I believe they tend to get populated with the anxious and dismissive combination because secure people tend to pair off pretty quickly or are more likely to get into a relationship in the first place is what I think. But I'd say most of my female friends fall into the anxious category. And I think a lot of guys on dating apps are fairly avoidant. That's interesting. Let's pick up on that. Because let's just say on a dating app, what starts to play out, okay? Because I think there are women who are also dismissive and men that are also anxious, preoccupied. But just for the sake of our talk, I think it's somewhat easier to talk about, let's say a man is a dismissive and let's say they're preoccupied, Mm -hmm. all right? One of the rules that we like to look for is because anxious, preoccupied women or men, but in this case, we'll say women, they tend to miss some red flags that are there. Interesting. (laughs) They want the relationship to be what it is. Okay. And they start making a lot of excuses. All right. So let's just say if you were to come to me and I said, you know what, Caitlin, here's some rules when you go on your dating app. Okay. Or you, you meet somebody. Don't give out your name and telephone number the first time. Okay. I made that mistake with my boyfriend. (laughs) (laughs) I probably made all the mistakes you're going to talk about. (laughs) You know, it's so funny you say that, but I think everybody does because most people are honest, well-intended people. You have good intention. So why wouldn't you want to give everybody your name? Because you're coming from that place. All right. But what we have seen is that not everybody joins dating sites for that reason. So this is what we're doing for more protection. 
it's kind of like arrange for your first introduction to be, let's say, don't give out your name, use the platform of the dating app, go to a new location, not a bar that you would go to frequently, but someplace you would never really go. So you don't ever have to worry about running into a person if they turn out not to be who they say they are. All right. We also talk about giving somebody like 45 minutes, like within 45 minutes of sitting with someone, you should be able to have a pretty good idea if that person you want to be with again. And you use that excuse like, you know, I'm sorry, I've made plans. I'd love to meet you again if you want to meet them again or not. And also, we also kind of talk about limit to one glass of wine or meet for coffee. Because once you start having one or two glasses of wine, you know, everything starts to change a little bit. And the other piece of advice I know that people are giving on dating is if you're going to be on a dating app, date three or four people at the same time or interview, kind of look at it as not a date, but like an interview. Do you want to spend time with this person? Is this someone that you would like to spend your time with? And when we say like maybe two or three at the time, because it kind of gives you a different perspective of what's out there and, you know, puts everything in a different light. And that would be kind of like one of the way that you can kind of protect. But if you look at it like going into a relationship, when you meet someone, is there chemistry or, is, or isn't there? But one of the things that we know is that insecure attachments, they tend to miss a lot of these kind of cues that you look back later on once you've been in the relationship and you've gotten your heart broken and then you start going, how did I miss that? Mm. Well, it's because it started in the very beginning. Does that make sense? That makes a lot of sense. Is there any criteria you would give to a woman who mm -hmm. maybe is anxious and would tend to overlook some red flags early on only to have it, as they say, bite her in the butt later on? Is <laughs> yeah. there any criteria or red flags that you would warn women about in advance? I would, but it's not just women. As a matter of fact, we could take this across the True. board for anybody, whether it's a job or a dating or going on True. a date or even just meeting somebody for the first time. One of the things that we know based on a lot of research is really the way someone answers a question, all right? And I do it in my office all the time. When I'm sitting with someone, I check to see if, if I ask a question, quality, what is the quality of their answer? So if, if I'm asking a question, I'm on, let's say on a blind date, and the person that I'm with are they telling me the truth? Is what they're saying believable? And are there any contradictions later on? An example of that would be, I don't like dogs or I don't have a dog, right? And then they start talking like 45 minutes down the road and they're like, yeah, you know, I love when I go to my friend's house and they have a dog and I play with the dog all the time. And then you're like, well, wait a minute, didn't you just say you didn't like dogs? And now all of a sudden you're talking about playing with dogs. It's this kind of organization of mind is what I'm talking about you know, in a conversation, it shouldn't be a contradiction. It should be kind of the same going through. Also, the quantity of information. If you ask a question and let's say this person gives you, you know, one or two answers, probably you're sitting with a dismissive. A dismissive and mm. um, insecure attachment style, they don't give a lot of information. They use too few words. An anxious preoccupied style will answer the same question but they could literally take three or four minutes to answer that question because they just wrap around and you ask about, you know, their sister and they're talking about their aunt, their uncle, <laughs> their kids. And you're kind of starting to get lost in this kind of like road of their mind. That's one thing to look for. And then relevance. 
is the person relevant? If you asked about that, just that last example, if you asked about, do they have siblings? And they totally disregard that question and they talk about their best friend. You are following along to what they're saying, the best friend, but that's not what you asked. You asked about the sister. So these are the kind of things that you want to kind of listen for when you're meeting somebody. And then the last thing you want to listen for is what's called manner. And manner is, is it fresh? Are they answering the question because they're really pulling to give you the information that you're asking because they're interested, they're valuing you, they're valuing the relationship? Or are they kind of giving you one word answers like la-di-da, la-di-da, or yada, yada, yada. And they're just kind of like blowing off your question by trying to be cute. Make sense? A person who really values you is going to really give you what you want and not kind of dismiss it and blow it off. That would be their style acting out rather than giving you what you want. So these are some of the things that I would tell people to really look for because tuning into these will help you with red flags. These are, a lot of these are all red flags if they're violated. That makes so much sense. When you were talking about coherentness and quality, mm -hmm. I was mm -hmm. thinking in my head of times when I've noticed incoherencies around things people have said, and I thought, oh, I must have heard them wrong, or oh, I must be confused, where I kind of took it on myself that even though I noticed something wasn't right, I just thought, oh, I heard it wrong. I gave, I gave them the benefit of the doubt, which I think, as I think I'm an anxious type, I think I'm more likely to do that. You might be more likely to do that, but also don't forget, you're also kind. You know, you're pulling for the relationship. You're pulling for it to be true. All right. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you're anxious. You could be secure doing the same thing. Mm. But I think when it happens more and more, when you start really yeah. like setting your own self aside and starting to go with what they say, that whittles away at you and it whittles away at your self-confidence and your self-esteem. And relationships should be the opposite of that. Relationships should be people that bolst you up, people that make you feel good about yourself. They, they share in your sense of accomplishment. They want the best for you. They want you to present well. And these are all the things that good, kind, secure people do. And these, I will say, are the types of relationships that I think everybody's looking for. And I think that's what you go on a dating app looking for. That's what you want. And then a lot of times, sometimes you start meeting somebody and they look really great. And let me just tell you, dismissive attachment styles look incredible on paper. All right. They do. They look like they've got everything going on. They don't need anybody. They're self-sufficient. They're independent. Okay. And these are very, very attractive to the other insecure attachment style because it's the polar opposite. The anxious, preoccupied, insecure style, they tend to focus a lot on the other person at their own expense. And they do a lot of self-sacrificing, a lot of like taking care of the other person. The problem with that is there's a difference between being kind and then tipping over into self-sacrifice. Because you want to be kind, but you don't want to be kind at your own expense. And anxious, preoccupied styles tend to tip over into self-sacrifice quite a bit. And once you tip over in, into self-sacrifice, you are really left with guilt and resentment. And there's nowhere else to go but guilt and resentment. That makes so much sense. Is there any hope for the dismissive type for them to change? 
You mentioned that in your practice, you don't see very many of them. So I'm assuming, as you said, they don't necessarily see that there's a problem. But let's say there's a woman or a man listening and they realize, oh my God, the person I'm dating is dismissive. Is there any hope for it? Or would you recommend usually find someone else? No, I would never say find somebody else, but I will tell you, once someone with a dismissive attachment style comes into therapy, they're reluctant at first, but then they really get into it. And they're actually easier to work with than an anxious preoccupied style. Wow. It's just getting them in the office. Okay. Mm. And you have to understand that back in the days of early, early, early childhood, these dismissive, insecure attachment styles were formed around rejection. So it doesn't necessarily mean the parents rejected them, but it, what it means is the child felt rejected by the parent. All right. And that's what they carry around with them. So it's this sense of rejection of, you know what, I'm an island. I can take care of myself. I know that if I get close to somebody, they're just going to reject me. So why bother? But everybody wants to be in relationships, but they're difficult right? Because the underlying current with all insecure attachment styles, and I would even say with secure attachment styles, is you, you long to be with somebody. You want to share the world with somebody. You want the good feelings. You want to evoke all of that. But a lot of time the behavior gets in the way, not with secure because they value everything and they're comfortable with, you know, accepting the blame and being part of something. And they don't, way so much about you know what happened 10 years ago they're they're talking about right now so let's say that there's an anxious and avoidant couple dating mm -hmm. and the woman has tipped over to the point where she's self-sacrificing now yeah. in order to just try and make things work and hold things together uh-huh what can she do to change this pattern can you it be changed once it's set but do you have to set it before? No, I think, I think what happens is it's also kind of like, you know, the self-discovery into you because the anxious preoccupied style, I just talked about the dismissive style and how they were created. How the anxious preoccupied style was created is they kind of were neglected. So I want you to kind of keep in mind neglected. It's a perceived neglect. This is around where, let's say, mother, father, caretaker was depressed, wasn't there for them. They started worrying about when they walk in the room, what's mom and dad's state going to be like, because I got to assess the situation. So I know how I can act because it's a sense of safety. They're trying to protect themselves. So what happens is they tend to focus so much on the other person that they don't really develop a sense of themselves. All right. So when this happens, what you do in therapy, it's kind of the opposite. With the dismissive style, you focus a lot on kind of like, well, what do the other people think? What, what do you think the other person feels? But with an anxious preoccupied, what you're focusing on is what do you feel? Because a lot of times they feel very comfortable and part of it is being involved in the other person's state. I'll give you an example. A couple goes, wants to go out to dinner. The man says, whether it's secure or dismissive, doesn't matter. Let's just say, he says, where would you like to go to dinner tonight? And she says, a secure attachment would say, well, I don't know. I, I was kind of thinking Italian food. An anxious preoccupied would never say that. What they would say is, I don't really care. Where do you want to go tonight for dinner? Well, it's because they're going to get their sense of self, their happiness, knowing that the other person is eating what they want, even if they didn't want Italian food. 
even if they really want a Thai food, all right? And that's what I mean by self-sacrifice. And, and a person can say, Paula, what are you even talking about? That's just being nice. It is being nice. You know, you're caring about the other person, so it could look like secure attachment. But what happens is when it tips over into self-sacrifice, let's say the person goes and they've had Italian food for five weeks in a row and they really wanted Chinese food or Thai food, and they're starting to get resentful, all right? Once the resentment comes in, then you know that you've tipped over into self-sacrifice mm -hmm. because once it's here, and one of the tips I like to give my clients a lot is avoid the word should. Just get rid of it altogether. Because when you say should, what you're basically telling your mind is, once should is introduced, it's either guilt or resentment. There's nowhere else to go. All right, so I'm guilty if I don't do it and I'm resentful if I do do it. It doesn't matter what it is. So by alleviating and learning how to get rid of what I should do and start moving into what I want to do, you free yourself up from these kind of like guilt and resentment patterns. And this is one of the ways I teach my anxious preoccupied clients to kind of start moving into really, what do you want to do? Because that's something that's kind of foreign to them because based on the history of neglect, they'll do anything so the other person doesn't leave them. That and makes sense. Does it make sense? And that's, that's how you start to make those shifts from what I should do all the time, I don't know, I don't know, to I want to go have Thai food for dinner tonight. That's it. How would a secure couple negotiate if they want to eat at different places? Just for the comparison, how would that look like? It would look like fine, whatever. I mean, they still want the other person to be happy, but they also want to be happy themselves. They won't self-sacrifice. So inevitably, one person is going to want it more than the other. And that would be just like, okay, no problem. But it won't be such a big guilt and resentment, emotionally charged thing. It will just be dinner. Does that make sense? That makes perfect sense. What about anxious types dating anxious types or dismissive types dating dismissive types do you ever see that in your practice not usually and the reason is is because dismissive types aren't really attracted to dismissive types because what you get is you get two people that are just kind of islands kind of standing with each other you know these are two people that don't do intimacy so no one's going to initiate the intimacy no one's going to initiate the close no one's going to pull at the other person for closeness because neither one of them want it. So you won't really see two dismissives together very often. And if you do, they're kind of like a partnership. You know, the husband and wife that are friends, they have a relationship. Maybe there was something there, but, you know, they don't really depend on each other for that closeness. And it goes the same kind of with the ancients preoccupied attachment styles because it'd be very difficult for two anxious preoccupied styles to get together because there's really not a, law, a strong sense of self on either one of them. So it would be very difficult for them to maneuver together because you don't get a sense that someone's strong making decisions and the other one's just kind of going along. Neither one of them are really making decisions. And it, it's too frustrating. It's too, there's nothing for them to kind of anchor on to. There's nothing for them to kind of get involved in someone else's emotional state because the partner at this point would be the same as them. So they really wouldn't be attracted to the other. What you find more often is you find the opposite because one is really involved in the other person's state 
and the other person's state likes that because they were rejected as a child. Interesting. So the dismissive type really craves the anxious type because they give them that kind of extra attention they didn't really get. And then the insecure or anxious type really actually craves the dismissive type because then they have someone to worry about and to care about. Whereas if they were with another anxious type, <laughs> nothing would happen. No decisions would get made. It would just be too much. They'd just be going back and forth. Be going back and forth. So this is how attachment plays out. And once again, it plays out in the workplace. It plays out in dating. It plays out in relationships. It plays out with friendships. And when something starts to become more and more difficult, then you start noticing that this is really what's going on here. And the answer is yes, you can change. All attachment styles can be changed into a secure range. But it, it has to be done with someone who really knows exactly how to treat it. It's not just something that's just going to magically happen. So that's, that's pretty much what I see going on in my office quite a bit. And it's exciting. I have to say, I'm someone who, you know, I like to see progress. I like to see people change. I like to see people go from difficult relationships to all of a sudden having healthy, positive relationships. And when the state of mind changes, it just opens up so many possibilities. How long does a treatment usually take if a client comes to you and they're not secure, they're insecure, and they would like to become secure? Well, generally speaking, one of the things that I would do is I would give them what's called the adult attachment interview. And this would assess what type of style they actually have. Once that is established, simultaneously, I give them what's called a schema questionnaire, which is 232 questions about belief systems. Because once you get the internal attachment style and you get the way the mind automatically operates with these automatic belief systems, you pretty much have a roadmap into the whole person's personality structure. I would work simultaneously on attachment, depending what it is, with hypnosis once again. I would identify the characteristics that created the insecure attachment in the parents. I would create a positive opposite. And the reason why I keep saying positive opposite is because the opposite of negative is not positive. It's nothing. And the opposite of positive is nothing. So if I were to, let's say, work with a client and they come in with negative belief systems, if I just work on the negative belief systems and I get rid of it, they're left with nothing, right? It's not like positive stuff just comes rushing in. You know, <laughs> so what I do is I don't actually focus on the negative. What I do is I, I start building and creating more positive. So I create positive beliefs and positive characteristics and positive. And I start gearing everybody that way. And to use an example of what I'm talking about, if you have half a glass of milk, and let's say that's a negative, all right? If I pour that half a glass of milk out after doing a year of therapy, and I turn it back up, your glass is empty. But if I take that same glass of milk, and I put in water, let's say positive, and I just keep pumping water in and keep pumping water in, all of a sudden, there's so much water that the milk is rising and bubbling over and it's coming out. And long enough, I've got a glass of water. Ah. 
And that is my technique for therapy because just taking away someone's characteristics or taking away negative behaviors, you're going to be left with nothing. Nobody wants to be left with nothing. That's true. Yeah. So how long does it take to your original question? (laughs) It actually depends, but that's my treatment. And we hammer away at it. We hammer away, we hammer away. And by the time someone actually comes to see me, it's because something's happened in their life where they can't take it anymore. They don't understand what's going on. They don't understand why they're in relationships with men. And every time they get into a relationship with a man, he doesn't want her. And she's had enough or he's had enough. And one of the things I want to say, when a woman starts making excuses for a man, that's a gigantic red flag because men go after what they want. When they want a job, they go after it. When they want to be on a sports team, they go after it. When When they they want want a raise, they ask for it. They ask for it. Men go after what they want. So the idea when a woman starts saying, well, he doesn't like intimacy, you know, he doesn't like this. No, no. You're missing what's going on. You're making excuses for the man who goes after what he wants. I'll give you an example. There was George Clooney. I don't know if you remember him in a single day. Oh, of course. Yeah. So he was like, Mr. Hollywood, I'm never going to get married. I'm never going to have kids. This is it. I just, I don't want to do it. Well, he's basically saying that's not what I wanted. Right. Until he meets the right woman. Now, all of a sudden he's married and he has twins. Right. So all the excuses all along were just excuses. That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. I think typically women try to justify things a little bit and maybe for instance, We listen a little bit more to what a man says, but actually looking at his actions may be more valuable, as you had previously mentioned to me. I will tell you as a woman dating that lips lie and behavior tells the truth. So if the behavior is opposite of what they're saying, I would look at the behavior because behavior doesn't lie. I have a friend and she's quite successful. She's super smart. She gives presentations around the world. And when she tells me about the things that she's done, she's glowing. She's super proud. She celebrates her accomplishments. And if something bad happens, she's really good at kind of brushing it aside and saying, okay, today was not the best day, but tomorrow will be better. She's just so secure in the way she handles things. And it seems to me like she has a lot of self-esteem. She's not arrogant. And I look at her and I'm like, oh my God, how does she do that? She's amazing. Quite a few females that I know, and I'm including myself in this, we have more self-doubts. When something good happens, we don't always credit ourselves fully. Could you talk a little bit about this phenomena and about self-esteem? Yes, I love self-esteem. Nobody tells you about how to get self-esteem. Like it's not at the grocery store. It's not at Bloomingdale's. You cannot order it online. It's something that we have and that we have to cultivate and we have to create. But there's no one that really talks about it. How self-esteem is created, and I'll start with a very young child because this is where it kind of starts to form. It's that sense of accomplishment that a child has. And if any of your listeners you know, know what it's like to be around, let's say a two-year-old or a three-year-old, when they do something so basic as you know, press the elevator button and you see the child, they're glowing, they're beaming, they just press the elevator button, right? And it means so much to them because that's the one thing they can do. 
But if um, someone hits their hand away and says, no, don't do that, let someone else do it. Well, the child has this opportunity to do something. It's a sense of accomplishment in his little two-year-old world. And a sense of accomplishment needs to be linked to a positive feeling, all right? And that's how you create self-esteem. So the people that have a lot of self-esteem, it's because they had very attuned parents or attuned grandparents or people were very attuned to them. And when they did these little sense of accomplishments, everything was celebrated. I'm not talking about going crazy. Do you know what I mean? Like buying balloons and a cake. But it's those moments when the child feels so good about themselves and everybody around them feels so good about them with them. They're all celebrating in it. And you can get that feeling, even as I talk about it, that the sense of pride and joy, right? And that's how self-esteem is created. And it starts really early. But let's just say a child has a mom who's depressed and can't get off the sofa. Or a dismissive father comes home and says, what's the big deal? Everybody knows how to press an elevator button. Or the mother's like, you know, stop doing it, anxious, preoccupied, more worried about whatever all the people in the elevator think. Don't do that. Let someone else do it because it's so much nicer for somebody else. So you can kind of see like even just like having those kind of attachment styles around this two-year-old with a sense of accomplishment, how it kind of shuts down the child based on, let's say, the parent's attachment style. A secure parent will kind of be like, let's wonderful. Let's, let's celebrate. That's, you know, you feel so good. Let's join in in this little celebration. And you feel so good. I want to join in with your feel-good state. The other insecure attachment styles tend to shut them down, all right? So as the child gets older, let's say the parents aren't standing on the sidelines for all the soccer games, or the father's too busy, or the mother's too busy working, or, you know, they're out with their friends and they don't care, and the child's sitting there at the games all by themselves. It doesn't matter if the child is scoring four goals and no one's there to watch it. Imagine how you feel about that. It's a sense of accomplishment you did for goals, but no one's there to really link in that positive feeling and celebrate that sense of accomplishment with you. That's where self-esteem comes from. So one of the things that I like to tell people is why stop now? When you do something and you feel good about it, yes, we want everybody to celebrate it. And a lot of people say, well, don't call your friends, don't blow your own horn or whatever. Savor the feeling, savor this feeling of accomplishment, something that you did, something that you feel so good about, something that you'll carry with you as a, God, that felt so good. I love that. So when you evoke that memory, what happens, it's not just a memory of what you did. It's the memory of the feel good state. And so for self-esteem, any sense of accomplishment, link it. And if you don't have parents to do it or a spouse to do it or friends to do it, do it yourself. But you have to link a feel-good state with a sense of accomplishment, because if you don't, you miss out. So you can start building self-esteem at any age if you really start linking positive feelings to your accomplishments, regardless of what happened to you when you were a child. Absolutely. That's what therapy is. Therapy is teaching you how to give yourself what you need without even knowing what you needed. That's what attachment is. By identifying your attachment, identifying, I was talking a little bit about the schemas. The schemas are 18 maladaptive beliefs that everybody carries. Some people score higher and some, and some score low. And these are kind of maladaptive beliefs like failure, self-sacrifice, emotional deprivation. And I'll give you an example because it all starts with your mind. Everything starts with your mind. Relationships start with your mind. 
romance starts with your mind. Everything starts with your mind. So I focus a lot on your mind and what is your mind doing? And for instance, if you have, let's say, high self-esteem and you're going to go to a party, well, even as you get dressed, you're all excited and happy because, you know, you've been to parties, you know, everybody at the party likes you. You go into the party confident and happy because everybody's there. You feel good about yourself. Well, imagine if you don't have high self-esteem. As you're getting ready, you have doubts, you have fears. Am I going to know anybody there? Am I going to like anybody? You walk into the party very differently depending on the state of mind, all right? And that's one of the things that we look at because, you know, coming from an insecure attachment style versus a secure or coming from maladaptive beliefs to adaptive beliefs, you're going to behave differently. And attachment comes out in behavior and it comes out in relationships. Once again, dating, work, parents, it doesn't matter. Your behavior comes out. And that's what changes by going to an attachment specialist is your behavior. But it actually starts with your mind and it actually starts with identifying what was going on and kind of going in with that positive opposite, kind of like the milk and the water example again. Let's start focusing on the positive. You start focusing on the positive, people start doing more of it because it feels good. As you're saying that, it sounds to me like low self-esteem is related to the three insecure attachment types. Absolutely. That's one of the hallmarks. You know, low self-esteem, it doesn't matter if it's a dismissive style or if it's even um, an anxious preoccupied style. They did not get what they needed very early on. And it's usually based in rejection and neglect. And imagine, you know, a child, once again, on the soccer field rejected, let's say his parents aren't even there, and neglected his mom's over there having coffee with her friends, not watching your four scores. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter if they were there. It's the way the child internalizes the experience. And so that's, we can recreate, not putting in new memories, but have them experience the memories that they already have from a very different perspective. And that's where you're going to start to see change. That's so interesting. It's also very freeing to know that you're not stuck with something that happened to you as a child, that there is the possibility for you to change and improve the quality of your life a lot. Because as you said, attachment style affects your behavior. And that's yep. how you live your life day to day, how people interact with you, how you interact with others, what type of relationships you form. It's so fundamental to everything we are. It's so fundamental. And even as we were talking about, you know, the two different uh, the styles, let's say in a relationship, you know, when you see a healthy relationship, they're happy. They live in the moment. Imagine if you're in a relationship and you're with a partner who is clingy and naggy and always living in the past or negative or someone who's like dismissing you and, and their behaviors. It, it, it does kind of start with the individual person. I think you have to start with you because a healthy relationship is when two people are healthy, they take care of themselves, they take care of themselves for each other, but also for themselves. And they're not dependent on each other. They want to be with each other, not because they need to, but because they want to. And it does kind of start with self. It's not just about the other person. It also starts with who are you and what do you bring to the table? And when you really value who you are, then you start presenting with that value and you start showing people internally who you are and what you believe in and your positive qualities. Does that make sense? And that's when you start meeting partners that 
you know, kind of like likes attract when it comes to secure attachment. Opposites attract when it comes to insecure attachment. So if you want to have a good relationship, I would say you have to also take assess yourself, assess your partner, what works, what doesn't. But it's not about what works for them. It's about what works for you. Make sense? That's so important to hear. Yeah. And this is what attachment is. And a lot of people will say to me, what is attachment? Well, this is attachment. (laughs) Everything you and I are talking about, this is attachment. And like I say, attachment plays out everywhere. And when you know where your difficulties are, it's like riding a bicycle. I bought a Peloton bike, okay? (laughs) If I want to see change, I got to get on that bicycle. It's Mm -hmm. not going to help just having it sit in my basement. (laughs) That's a really good metaphor. I think so. And that's what, that's what working on yourself is. It's, you know, whether it's your body or your mind, I think it's equally as important. Why is it that men and women view signals around sex differently? That a woman dresses up, she goes out to a party, she thinks she looks nice, she wants to see her friends, maybe meet a nice man. And she smiles at a guy and he's like, oh, that girl wants to sleep with me tonight. How does that happen? I think it happens because it's the wish of every man. You know, they just, they they misread cues. So what happens is when a woman gets dressed up and goes out, it doesn't necessarily mean she wants to have sex. It means that she wants to go out. Women associate feelings with how they look and how they feel. All right. Men don't really do that very often. I mean, they go out and they're going out because they want to have sex. So you already have this kind of misread going on. When a guy goes out to a bar with his friends, he's hoping to get lucky. When a girl goes out to a bar with her friends, she's hoping to meet a really nice guy. All right. That's so true. And, I know. And nice guys want to have sex and girls want to have sex too. But what kind of happens here is, and I have actually seen this a lot, and I've actually talked to men who say this, that if a woman smiles at them, they think it's a come on. They think that that's like the open door to go buy them a drink and that it's pretty much guaranteed that she's really interested with him and she really wants him. And that's a signal. And what happens is the woman is like, you know, trying to look for a nice guy. She's assessing him and she's like, well, he seems nice maybe next time. And, but that's not the deal. He's not going out tonight to have sex next time. He's going out tonight to have sex tonight. Okay. The girl's going out to be like, well, maybe I'll meet somebody and maybe next time that will be the case. And so what plays out, which is a very interesting thing, men are very nice while they think they're going to get lucky. But the minute the girl says, you know, no, it's late. I'm going to go home with my friends. They feel rejected and they actually, they change. It's almost like they've wasted all of this time when they could have been going after something else. All right. And that's a really put off to a woman. Because if a man is looking for a relationship, it doesn't matter if he has sex now or not. But men are not necessarily looking for a relationship. I think they would like a relationship, but they also would really like sex, Mm -hmm. right? A woman would really like a relationship. And the sex is part of that, but that's not the primary lead. So what we also find is we find the man's primary reason is to have sex. The woman's primary reason is to have a relationship. And so you kind of have a misread. I actually feel very bad for women on this because they're very nice until you say no. And then the minute you say no, they actually turn and they become mean. And that's when women are like, you know, if this is who you really are, I'm not interested. I think every woman has a friend who has met a guy and been interested in him and thought he was interested in her. And then she sleeps with him and he doesn't want to speak to her anymore. Yeah. 
Well, because once you get what you have, you're kind of satisfied. So you don't have this drive anymore. You know, it's like the want, you know, it's like, it's like, how do they get the horse to move? Well, they keep putting the carrot in front where they, they can't get the carrot. Once the horse gets the carrot, he stops walking. It's the same kind of mentality with sex and a man. You know, once they get it, they're not interested in that woman. If they weren't interested in her to begin with, then it's just, it's just sex. All right. And women misread this as like, oh, a guy's really into him. Well, exactly. that's, actually, that's actually not the case because a woman has all the parts. We all have the same parts. Everything's exactly the same. But what really attracts a man is the mind. Who she is as a person, the way she relates, how she makes him feel. I'm not even talking sexually. I'm talking about how she makes him feel as a person. And everybody wants that special person, right? Well, everybody is kind of special, but they're special to their mate or they're special. But there's a lot of people that carry themselves like they're very special. And a lot of people are very attracted to them because they're throwing off what guys want, which is that specialness. Does that make sense? That makes a lot of sense. I always tell women, you know, think about yourself as what kind of girl would you want to date if you were a guy? Like, what would you be attracted to? You know, and that's how you want to kind of see yourself because you know, guys want the same thing. They really do. They want to have a beautiful girl. Guys enter into a relationship hoping the girl never changes. Girls enter into a relationship hoping the guy changes. <laughs> that sounds so, like you, a recipe for disaster. <laughs> well, in a sense, it is. And that's why I'm saying, you know, you should, 10 years later, 20 years later, you should still be married to the same person that you met 20 years ago or 10 years ago. Otherwise, it wasn't real. Well, I think you've answered the million dollar question. What does a man want? What does a man want? Well, you know, it's interesting because after the man has sex, then he wants the relationship. The woman wants the relationship and then the sex. So I think it's always going to be somewhat of a dance. But once again, and I will say this, I think it's interesting because when I work with my male clients, I get such a different perspective from them, you know, than what I see with my female clients. But can I tell you the underlying current is everybody wants to be in love with somebody? That's the underlying current with both of them. It's just what behaviors either enhance that wish or take away from that wish. Well, that's a very beautiful way to end the interview today, knowing that everybody wants to be in love. Everybody wants to give love and everybody wants to receive love. Some people just need a little more help in discovering the best way to give and receive love. I agree. Let's switch gears a little bit. In our modern times, it's become popular to say women have sexual liberty, they can do whatever they want and sleep with whoever they want, and I agree, women should have liberty and be able to choose and do what they want freely. But I do feel that, from what I've seen in the world, women do tend to get attached through sex more so than men do. I think men don't necessarily get attached from sex, not that they can't, but they don't usually, whereas women do quite often. Could you talk a little bit about this, about why it may or may not be true? They get attached to the promise of a relationship, not through mm. sex. It's a male thing for sure, but it's also an attachment style, okay? Because an anxious, preoccupied man is going to want the relationship, so he's going to kind of carry on a little bit more wanting the relationship more. 
Attachment is about relationships. All right. Sex is not attachment. All right. So a woman is going into a relationship because she wants a relationship. She wants that interaction with another. She wants to be in love. She wants all of that. Right. A man goes into a relationship because they want that. But when you have a one night stand, you don't get a chance to meet the other person. You don't get a chance to meet the mind. You don't get a chance to see the wishes and the dreams and the values. And you don't get a chance to cultivate all the longing and all the beautiful things that are about a person in a relationship. So if you rush into a relationship and you just have sex, then you don't get a chance to cultivate the longing. And the longing is the most beautiful thing. And we've lost the longing. In today's society, if you think about Downton Abbey, all the longing Everybody's watching Downton Abbey and all you see are all these people longing for relationships and longing for their partners because they go for a long time in between correspondence. And today's everything's instant gratification, instant gratification. You want to talk to somebody, you pick up the phone. You want to send somebody a message, you send the message. Everything is instant. Nothing cultivates the longing and longing is so important in a relationship. That's why when your spouse goes away for the weekend, you start missing them. You start missing everything about them. You start valuing who they are. You start longing to see them again. When you rush into things like sex or you rush into moving in together or you rush into whatever it is and you do this instant gratification in relationships, you miss out on the savoring of the beauty and you miss out on the longing of the desires. And those are things that are being pushed aside today because everything is so quick. Let me just meet you, go to bed with you, and then it's over. And then he's moved on or you've moved on or whatever. And you've missed this opportunity to kind of create those wonderful feelings inside of yourself. It almost sounds like a slower schedule in terms of meeting somebody and spending time with them is actually a great way to build the foundation of a relationship. Because then you also have the chance to see more of who a person is over time. Yeah. It's interesting because when you think of male-female sexuality, you think of a man's a blowtorch <laughs> in just two seconds, okay? A woman is like an oven. You know, it takes about you know, a while for the oven to heat up. It takes a while for everything to be ready. And it's not so much that, you know, it's male-female and all the opposites and everything, but this is just the, the way the body is built. So I would say to people, if you really want a relationship, go for the relationship. If you want sex, go for the sex. But don't go for the sex if you want a relationship and don't go for the relationship if you want sex. Because go for what you want. But don't send a mixed message and say, yes, I want a one night stand and now I want to be married for 30 years. <laughs> you can have it. Maybe it works. I don't know. But what I'm saying to you is if you want the relationship, then create the relationship you want. That's very sound advice. <laughs> What's one book that you recommend everyone read? The one book that I recommend everybody read, and I do give it to a lot of my clients, is it's called Emotional Vampires, People That Emotionally Drain You. That is my favorite book. It explains personality disorders to the lay person, and I, I just think it's an absolutely brilliant book. As soon as we end this interview... I'm going to order it. <laughs> and what about one healthy way that you manage stress? I think the healthiest way to manage stress 
is to just really stay grounded in the moment. I think so many times stress and anxiety are kind of in a, like a tumbleweed, so to speak. And anxiety is all about future unknown. And when you bring it to the here and now in just this moment, nothing is future, nothing is unknown. And it brings your stress level down because you're not worried about what's going to happen. You're just present. And I think that would be my advice for um, managing stress. So would that be breathing, feeling your body, feeling where you feel the stress or? It could be all of that. It could be any way that you want to do it. it. You know, some people sit in a swing and read a book. Some people just sit and close their eyes and breathe. Some people, mm-hmm. you know, go throw on some shoes and go running. I mean, there's different ways of managing it. But I would say stress is also in the mind. And I focus a lot on the mind because a healthy mind creates a healthy life. And when your mind is healthy, it's strong, it stays in the here and now, it values things, it has the positive approach, then you're managing stress automatically. It doesn't, it's not something you have to, you know, walk out your office and do. It just is. And I think that's where we want to always try and go for. And that would be, you could call it secure attachment if you want, or call it just how to get through the day. But when you really stay on top of your mind and you really control your mind and you don't let your thoughts be like horses running out of a barn, running uncontrollable, you know, you just kind of just bring it to the here and now. Because if you're here right now, there's no other reality right now, Caitlin, than you and I talking. We know it's out there, but our reality in front of our faces right now is just you and me. That's true. That's true. (laughs) (laughs) And what about one place in the world that you love the most? I have to say, I think it's just being outside with nature, you know, just feeling the grass on your feet and looking at the beautiful blue sky. Not a fan of rain, to be honest with you, (laughs) but anywhere where, you know, it's just when you're outside and I just think beauty has a way of just coming in front of us. And I think just, I can't even say what a favorite place. I travel a lot and I can't wait to see the next place. And every place is the favorite that I've been to. That's such a good attitude. (laughs) so if you want to read more about paula or if you want to book a therapy session with her you can visit her website paula com. i'm going to spell that out it's p-a-u-l-a-s-a-c-k-s-l-i-c-s-w.com i'm putting the link to it directly in the notes for this show on my website beauty is eternal Her book, Attachment Disturbances in Adults, is available for purchase online. You can learn more about that also on her website. Thank you so much for being my guest today, Paula. I can't believe how knowledgeable you are about attachment, and you're so good at articulating things and stating things so clearly in such a way that it's really beautiful to listen to you. And I learned so much, so thank you so much. Well, Kaylin, thank you so much for having me. It's so, it was such a nice experience. And as you know, I love talking about attachment. (laughs) Well, you're good at it. So it's good. (laughs) All right. Take care. Bye. Bye.